Okay, the scripture today, the first um, section comes from Luke chapter 24, verse 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. But when, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. The second section comes from John chapter 20, verse 24 through 28. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Have you ever had an experience where suddenly everything that you thought was right, thought you were going to do, is all of a sudden now being challenged? And you're suddenly faced with the idea that maybe you weren't thinking about it right. Maybe your plans need to be changed, but you don't know what they need to be changed to yet. So you're just kind of here. <laughs> don't know about what you were thinking and you don't know what lies ahead yet. I think this is what the disciples felt when they first saw Jesus resurrected. I mean, they had their preconceived ideas. They even had it to the point where at Jesus' ascension, one of them said, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom? <laughs> they still had this whole idea of what Jesus was supposed to be. Defeat the Romans, set up a kingdom. But at the resurrection, they got all kinds of questions. We thought you were dead. Now you're alive. Even though he told them this was going to happen. But now you're alive. And... What's the future? And all our ideas from before, we're starting to question them. And I think that's where they were left at, at this point here. And I guess my question right, right off to beginning, begin with would be this. Are you willing to accept that? 
that ambiguity of being in a place where you just don't know what God is going to have you to do. And your past ideas may just come to an end. Are you willing to trust him to believe that he knows what he's doing? Because, I mean, you think about it. Put yourself in the disciples' place. They saw him hanging on that cross. They saw him bleed. And they knew he was put into a tomb. He's dead. And what are they thinking? It's all over with? What? I mean, we're never going to see him again. It's all over with. Every, everything that we had hoped for, even on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples, that we had hoped that this would be, and now their hope has crashed. And now he's alive. Let me tell you, that changes everything. And it can change everything in your life if you're willing to accept it. I have three points here. And this basically is what I'm talking about par partially is conviction. And a definition of one of the, in one of the dictionaries of the word conviction is a formal declaration that someone is guilty of a criminal offense made by the verdict of a jury or the decision of a judge in a court of law. That's one definition of conviction. But the conviction we're talking about is another is this way, a firmly held belief or opinion. Well, let's just do away with the idea of opinion. Because opinions are like garbage cans. Everybody has them and they all stink. <laughs> I'm talking about a conviction of something that is absolutely real. And that is the resurrection of Jesus. Our text shows where they're, they're, they are, the disciples are in a, a room that's locked, and suddenly Jesus appears. He's just there. He didn't open the door. He's just there. And the disciples, uh, instead of them, they're startled and frightened. Well, wouldn't you be? And he says to them, you know, touch me if you want. I'm flesh and bone. A spirit, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bone. And this is one thing that I want to I press. I don't know how much you've thought about this or anything else. Jesus literally was raised from the dead bodily. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a ghost. He was flesh and bone. And I think it's deliberately that he said, do you have anything to eat? Not that he needed it, but a ghost doesn't eat. A spirit doesn't eat. But a real body can eat. And he ate broiled fish right in front of them. And it says that right in front of them, he ate it. 
He said to them, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. He also said to them, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I already spoke about, and as I began, about this whole concept of what the disciples thought of Jesus. And suddenly, everything changes. Everything is, is, is rearranged. <clears throat> I don't think that that's something that just happened back then. But I firmly believe that that can happen to us now and could happen several times. We weren't there at that place to see Jesus walk into a room. But I can tell you that there have been times in my own life, and I'm sure that there have been times in other people's lives too, when suddenly you encountered Jesus. In some way or another, you encountered him, either through the word or in a time of prayer. But all of a sudden, he became so real to you that it was as if he was there in front of you. And believe me, when that happens... Things change. Because when you encounter the living Jesus, something's going to happen. And that's why I started out. Your preconceived ideas all of a sudden are going to get altered. And your future that you thought you had all planned out suddenly gets challenged. Are you ready for that? Are you willing to accept that possibility? There's two phrases in this passage that I think are very important. Startled and frightened. The suddenness of the appearance of Jesus. We think we know so much about Jesus, but suddenly when we really see him, it can startle us and frighten us because he will undo what we thought was correct about him and what we thought about ourselves. And again, the question is, are we ready for that? The, sudden, you know, the, the suddenness of his appearance. Jesus so often did that, just suddenly was there. His words that he spoke were sudden. They, so many times, um, what was, so many times he, he didn't use the nicety of words to suddenly get in there. A lot of times he did. He was able to reach people that way. But suddenly he would do things that would just fly in the face of the Pharisees, fly in the face of the Sadducees and of the teachers, and just ruin their whole thoughts about things. And he had to do that. And sometimes he has to do that with us. I, I know of, of people, people here in, in Life Church. I've been here for, I don't know, since 95. But, and I've, I've watched people, and I've seen certain people come in. They know very little. They get saved. And they don't have this dynamic experience. Well, to them it is. 
but I mean, isn't isn't it? It isn't so, so sudden, but they. They fall in love with Jesus, and they begin to pray a lot. They begin to read the word a lot, and they study, and they go after, and they go after until, until a fire is ignited within them, and, and it just never goes out. Then they just go after God. Now, me, most of the time, God has to take a two-by-four up the side of the head. I don't know why. I'm just thick-headed, I guess. I just don't get things. But when he does that, they're pretty dynamic. But either way... Gets the thing done. And I think I, I, I think this is what it I mean, what would what how how are you going to respond to something? How would the disciples I mean, how would Jesus approach the disciples without startling them and frightening them? I mean, suddenly he's dead, but suddenly he's in the room with them. No door was opened up, it was locked. I mean, you're gonna be startled and frightened too. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to think. And I think this is what we, we have to realize, that when, when Jesus approaches us, we need to, be, we need to whether we, when Jesus approaches us, we need to accept that. And we need to accept the fact that maybe everything that we thought about in the past is going to be uprooted. And maybe everything we plan for the future is over. Because maybe he's going to change everything, your perspective and your way of looking at life at that point. And whether, whether you want that to happen or not, most likely it will. I have plans for my life, kind of things that I thought maybe I was going to do. But I've had several encounters with the Lord that were pretty dynamic. And they altered everything about what I thought I, was, I should do with do. They threw into question everything that I had planned. And I stood in a state of limbo for the longest time, not knowing. And I'm still there in some sense because I don't know what you want from me, God. There are some things I know, and I'll do those things. But other than that, I don't know. But I think that's a wise way to live. I don't think that the disciples, I don't think that Peter had any concept of the fact that when his life came to an end, he was going to be crucified upside down. At least that's what tradition tells us. I don't think the Apostle John had any idea that he was going to be thrown into oil. These words startled and frightened, they do go a lot deeper than just a physical reaction of, of, of fear and what is this and what's really happening here. He was dead, now he's alive. But it goes right to the depth of, of who you are. And this is the conviction that I, I want us to understand at this point. When you begin to realize that Jesus really did rise from the dead, I mean, think about it. Have you ever seen anybody arise from the dead? They were dead in the tomb, and now they're alive. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. Okay, that, that event, even though it was 2,000 years ago, if you get a hold of it in your heart, deep in your heart, it is going to transform the very core of your being. 
if he rose from the dead, then what are you doing living the way you're living? That's the question. If he rose from the dead, why do you persist in habitual sin? If he rose from the dead, then why are you not giving your life totally to him? If he rose from the dead, why does he not own you? Scripture makes that very clear. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So if he rose from the dead, don't live like he didn't. Jesus is not subject to our preconceived ideas. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Jesus will never violate his word, the Bible. But at the same time, do not hold him to restrictions that the Bible does not. The Holy Spirit blows like the wind. You do not know where the wind comes from or where it is going. So is the Holy Spirit. When you think he can't do something, he will. He came into a room without opening the doors, and suddenly. That's how he operates. He doesn't follow us and our ideas and our thoughts, but he will follow the word because he, he is the word. There's a, second, there's a second phrase here that I think is very important. Touch me and see. Touch me and see. See what? Sure, he's saying to the disciples, you know, put your hands on me. See if I'm really flesh and bone. See if I'm, and make sure that I'm not just a spirit. Touch me and see, referring to understanding. But I think there's something far greater than this. If you remember, in the scripture, there is a story of Jesus doing a healing on a blind man. Someone brought a blind man. It's in Mark 8. Someone brought a blind man to him. And Jesus took him by the hand and led him out of the village and then spit in his eyes. That's an unusual way of doing it. Could, he could have just said, receive your sight, but he spit in his eyes. And then Jesus asked the man, what do you see? He said, I see men, but they look like trees walking around. So Jesus worked with him some more until finally his sight was totally restored. There's a point in our lives where vision and what we see and what we really understand is just blurred. Now, I don't know how many of you know this, but I only have one good eye. My left eye, I was born that way. It's a blur. If I shut my right eye, I know there's people out there. I can see colors, but if, you were, if I didn't know where you were sitting and who you were, I wouldn't be able to recognize you. It's just, it's just a blur. So I imagine that, that what this man saw at first, trees walking around, yeah, well, if I looked out and you had your arms up like 
I might think you're trees. <laughs> you know, walking around. Can you imagine in your spiritual life living that way? Walking in a blur. The word talks about working while it is day, doing the things while it's day when you can see because night comes when no man works because you cannot see. But I have a feeling that there's a, there's a lot of us sometimes we operate. You know, if I, were to, I can walk. I'm not sure about things in front of me. I think there's something there. I'm not sure what it is. It's just that, it's just that connection there. I didn't want to walk on it because it looked like to me it was sticking up and I'd stumble over it. Is that the way we want to walk as Christians? Not sure about things, not able to see, not things foggy, not clear, not focused? You know, I know that there's sometimes we have questions and we struggle with those questions and we don't know what the answers are. But I'm not convinced that we need to stay there. I am convinced that God is saying to us, touch me and see. See, Jesus took that blind man, spit in his eyes, an unusual way to heal it, heal him, but he, that's what he did. And then he worked with him a little longer, and his vision became clear. And I think that that statement, touch me and see, has more to, more to do with the disciples. He's saying to the disciples, you need to touch me because I'm resurrected. Now will you see what I want you to see and quit looking at your preconceived ideas about what all things are? Will you truly see me as I really am and follow me? Jesus never does, or very seldom, says this is what it's going to be like. This, 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 this. There's your life. He just doesn't do it. He says, there's your first step, take it. And we sit there, but what do I do after that? You're never going to know until you take the first step. He just won't do it. Because we walk by faith, not by sight, not by senses. We have to trust him. Because we're that messed up. If we know what's all out there, we might not go. We might want to go over here. And so many times we do. But Jesus, I believe, is saying, if, if, if the vision that we have is clouded up like that, like if I close my eye, I th you know, if I was crazy enough to just go put a patch over this eye and walk around like that, I'd probably stumble over everything. I wouldn't know who I was talking to unless I heard their voice and could recognize their voice. But so many of us live Christian, the Christian life like that. We don't have to. Seek him. Go after him. Pray. Read the word. Ask him questions. Tell him about your frustrations. Tell him about the, about the confusion that you feel. I don't know what to do. There are things in my life I haven't got a clue what to do. They've gone on for years. I don't know what the answer is. I keep praying. I keep asking. And I'm going to keep praying and I'm going to keep asking. I found out one thing. Maybe I won't get the answer to that thing that has gone on for life. But I'll tell you one thing. It's gotten me closer to the Lord. It's gotten me a lot closer to him, and it's gotten me to the place where I trust him. That even if he's not going to answer that prayer, even if that situation is not going to get taken care of, I'm okay, Jesus, because you're my Lord. You're my Lord. 
Jesus is saying, touch him and see. Touch him and see. There's only one way you can touch him now. The Bible. There's only one way you can, one other way you can touch him. Prayer. They go together. Pray this word. Believe this word. Seek after him. His, his biggest delight is to get you close to him. Not to give you things that you're asking for. Although he does that. He's done it for me many times. But the biggest thing is that I've gotten closer to him. That means more to me than anything he could ever give me. Because everything he gives me is going to pass away. But my relationship with him is not going to pass away. And that's the first thing he told me after that last experience of a couple of years ago. Because I said to him, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Because I don't know what to do. And he said, there's one thing I want you to do. I heard this really clear. Get to know me. Forget about everything else. And that's what I'm after. I want to know him. I want to know who he is. And Jesus is saying, touch me and see. That's the conviction. Jesus is the source of life. There is no other source of life. He rose from the dead. That becomes the conviction. He is the source of life because he destroyed death when he rose from it. I want to read from this book several things that are quite revealing. It says, the resurrection of Jesus has given him authority to impart the life of God to me, and my experimental life must be constructed on the basis of his life. Now, if it's confusing what you say, my experimental life, what that really means is that when you believe in Jesus, your life after that is an experiment because you don't know what's coming. He does, but you don't. So you trust him. You take that one step, and he'll show you the next one. That's an experimental life. I can have the resurrection life of Jesus now, and it will show itself in holiness. That's the resurrection life of Jesus. That's why I said, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, why do we persist in our habitual sins? They can stop. You can end it. You can decide, I will obey Jesus and pursue him. The idea all through the Apostle Paul's writings is that after the moral decision to be identified with Jesus in his death has been made, the resurrection life of Jesus invades every bit of my human nature. Do you see the prerequisite there? After the moral decision of being identified with Jesus and his death. I will be crucified with Christ that I might live the resurrection life of Jesus. It takes omnipotence, all power, to live the life of the Son of God in mortal flesh. You follow that? It's why sometimes we fail so often. We fail so often and sin so often as can't seem to overcome. It's because it takes the all-powerfulness of God, of the Son of God, in mortal flesh to live that life. The Holy Spirit 
cannot be located as a guest in a house. He invades everything. If, if you've given only so much part of your life to the Holy Spirit, he can have this, but he can't have the rest of it. Then you're not allowing the almighty power of God to transform you. And he will either be in complete control of your life or he won't be there. He will convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, but he wants all of you. And when you make that moral decision, the resurrected Jesus requires of me to make that moral decision because he is life. Then I can live that life victoriously. When... When I have made the moral decision about sin, it is easy to reckon actually that I am dead unto sin because I find the life of Jesus there all the time. God puts the holiness of his son into me and I belong to a new order spiritually. And that new order is there because of the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. And then we come to the place where Thomas, because Thomas was not in that room when he first, when the, Jesus walked into that, came, came into that room, doors locked, Thomas was not there. So the disciples tell him about it. And what does Thomas do? Unless I put my hand in the nail prints of his hands, touch his side, see his feet, I'm not going to believe. I refuse. Well, don't be so hard on Thomas. Would you believe that he rose from the dead? That's a, that's a big thing to start believing when you've never ever seen it before. But a few days later, Jesus appears in the, in the room. He looks at Thomas and he says, here's my hands. Here's my feet. Here's my side. I don't know whether Thomas actually touched Jesus. The Bible doesn't say. But I have a hunch he never did. Because when he saw Jesus, his first response was, my Lord and my God. I have to come back to this point of, if Jesus really rose from the dead, what is the only response you can say to him? My Lord and my God. You can't say anything else. He just destroyed death. He destroyed the power of sin. He destroyed every enemy that is ever against you. The only response you can give to him is my Lord and my God. Jesus is God. He's one person of the triune God. Scripture makes it very clear. In John, there is a scripture that says, I and the Father are one. Now you could, if, you, if, if you're just going to look at the English, you can, make an, you can make an argument, oh, he's saying I and the Father are one person. 
the original language, the Greek, does not say that. The word one is neuter. I and the Father are one thing. Deity. One essence. Jesus is God. I'm going to stress that. Jesus is deity. He is the everlasting Father, the wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God. He is from everlasting to everlasting. There has not been anything made that was made that he didn't make it. He was there, always there, without end, without beginning. And I want that to soak in. The very God who created everything that existed, who has, has no beginning, has no end, came to this earth and dwelt among us, became flesh to be with us because he loved us that much. Can you imagine having the eternal God right there with you in physical form? The disciples did. No wonder Thomas could only response was, my Lord and my God, because he recognized this is resurrection. There's no other response. And then the response, my Lord. He recognized that his life was over. Thomas's life is over. It belongs to his Lord. And that has to come to a point where in, in each one of us, we have to realize our life is over. It belongs to the Lord. And the only way to know him, to really know him, is to read his word and to pray it through and to talk with him. He's a real person. I get up in the morning sometimes and, and I, 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 get, I have all these emotions and all these feelings going on and all this stuff going on. And I sit down on the table with, my, with the Bible and it's just like sometimes, sometimes I reach over and I pull a chair out. Jesus, I just wish I could see you right there. But then I have to remind myself, you are. You really are. You really are. And then I have to think about the, what the word says, be still and know that I am God. And know. And all the stuff that's going on in my head and all the emotions and all the things, and I just realized, Jesus, you're not the author of that. You just want me to have fellowship with you. The conviction, the conviction is this, that Jesus is the source of all life. You're not going to find it anyplace else. You can run after whatever you want to run after, but you're not going to find it. 73 years old. And I have not lived my life holy for the Lord. But I'll tell you, in these last few years, when he encountered me, and I said, yes, Lord, I'll live it. I'll do what you want your way. It's been the most wonderful episode of my life in two years. Though I've known him, for many, many years, even since I was a little, little in grade school. And my heart just aches. You've got to know him. He's the best friend I've ever had. 
He's the best person, the best thing has ever happened to me. Changed everything. He is the source of life. That is the conviction. He is the Lord. That is the conviction. He is God. That is the conviction. This is his word. All of it. He breathed it out. He moved by the power of his spirit upon the, upon the writers of, that, of this word and moved them along to write everything that's in here. This is the only way we're going to know him is to be in his word, to study it, to look into it, to read it, and to pray for understanding and to seek after it so we can really know who he is. He is the author of life. He is my Lord and my God. And the resurrection demands that you say the same thing, my Lord and my God. Father God, I thank you for giving your son. I thank you, Jesus, that you came to this earth and you wanted to. You knew what it was going to cost you, but you said, I'm going anyway. Jesus, no man took your life. You laid it down of your own accord. And you took it up again. Because death couldn't hold you. But you paid the price. And because you're alive today, I say to you, Jesus, my Lord and my God, I belong to you. I need you. And even more than that, I want you. Because you are the source of life. You are the source of life, and you've proved it in your resurrection. Thank you. Thank you for so great a salvation. I pray, Jesus, come alive in us. Come alive in us. Really alive in us. And get, and get out of us, please. Work in us and get out of us those things that quench your life and that quench your spirit. And may your fire of your life burn bright in us. In Jesus' name, amen.